If you're enjoying Send Me to Sleep, make sure that you've followed the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and any other podcast player you use. Also, if you have a moment, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. All of this really helps the show reach new listeners. And you never know, your review may convince someone to listen and lead them to a good night's rest, which I hope you all agree is worth sharing. Thanks so much for your listenership and support. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the place to find a good night's rest. My name's Andrew, and I'm so pleased you've joined me tonight and taken this time for yourself to ensure you get a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight, I'll be reading The Yosemite by John Muir, Part 9, Ancient Glaciers. Discover the wondrous landscapes of California's glaciated Sierra Mountains, glimpsing into the magnificent forces of nature that shaped the region. If you haven't already, find a nice place to get cosy. Take a deep, relaxing breath and settle your body in whatever way feels most comfortable. Now all you'll need to do is follow the sound of my voice. So let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. The Ancient Yosemite Glaciers How the Valley Was Formed All California has been glaciated, the low plains and valleys as well as the mountains. Traces of an ice sheet thousands of feet in thickness, beneath whose heavy folds the present landscapes have been moulded, may be found everywhere, though glaciers now exist only among the peaks of the High Sierra. No other mountain chain on this or any other of the continents that I have seen is so rich as the Sierra in bold, striking, well-preserved glacial monuments. Indeed, every feature is more or less tellingly glacial. Not a peak, ridge, dome, canyon, Yosemite, lake basin, stream or forest will you see that does not, in some way, explain the past existence and modes of action of flowing, grinding, sculpting, soil making, scenery making ice. For, notwithstanding the post-glacial agents, the air, rain, snow, 
frost, river, avalanche, etc., have been at work upon the greater portion of the range for tens of thousands of stormy years, each engraving its own characters more and more deeply over those of the ice. The latter are so enduring and so heavily emphasized, they still rise in sublime relief, clear and legible, through every after-inscription. The landscapes north of Greenland, Antarctica, and some of those of our own Alaska are still being fashioned beneath a slow, crawling mantle of ice, from a quarter of a mile to probably more than a mile in thickness, presenting noble illustrations of ancient conditions of California, when its sublime scenery lay hidden in a process of formation. On the Himalaya, the mountains of Norway and Switzerland, the Caucasus, and on most of those of Alaska, their ice mantle has been melted down into separate glaciers that flow river-like through the valleys, illustrating a similar past condition in the Sierra, when every canyon and valley was the channel of an ice stream, all of which may be easily traced back to their foundations, where some 65 or 70 of their topmost residual branches still linger beneath protecting mountain shadows. The change from one to another of those glacial conditions was slow as we count time. When the great cycle of snow years, called the glacial period, was nearly complete in California, the ice mantle, wasting from season to season, faster than it was renewed, began to withdraw from the lowlands and gradually became shallower everywhere. Then the highest of the Sierra domes and dividing ridges, containing distinct glaciers between them, began to appear above the icy sea. These first river-like glaciers maintained united in one continuous sheet towards the summit of the range for many centuries. But as the snowfall diminished and the climate became milder, this upper part of the ice sheet was also in turn separated into smaller, distinct glaciers, and these again into still smaller ones, while at the same time, all were growing shorter and shallower, though fluctuations of the climate now and then occurred that brought their receding ends to a standstill, or even enabled them to advance for a few tens of hundreds of years. Meanwhile, hardy, home-seeking plants and animals, after long waiting, flocked to their appointed places pushing bravely on higher and higher, along every sun-warmed slope, closely following the retreating ice, which, like shreds of summer clouds, at length vanished from the newborn mountains, leaving them in all their main, telling features nearly as we find them now. 
tracing the ways of the glaciers, learning how nature sculptures mountain waves in making scenery beauty that so mysteriously influences every human being is glorious work. The most striking and attractive of the glacial phenomena in the Upper Yosemite region are the polished glacier pavements because they are so beautiful and their beauty is of so rare a kind, so unlike any portion of the loose, deeply weathered lowlands where people make homes and earn their bread. They are simply flat or gently undulating areas of hard resisting granite, which present the unchanged surface upon which with enormous pressure the ancient glaciers flowed. They are found in most perfect condition in the sub-alpine region, at an elevation of from 8,000 to 9,000 feet. Some are miles in extent, only slightly interrupted by spots that have given way to the weather, while the best preserved portions reflect the sunbeams like calm water or glass and shine as if polished afresh every day. Notwithstanding, they have been exposed to corroding rains, dew, frost, and snow measureless thousands of years. The attention of wandering hunters and prospectors who see so many mountain wonders is seldom commanded by other glacial phenomena. Moraines, however regular and artificial looking, canyons, however deep or strangely modelled, rocks, however high. But when they come to these shining pavements, they stop and stare in wondering admiration, kneel again and again to examine the brightest spots, and try hard to account for their mysterious, shining smoothness. They may have seen the winter avalanches of snow descending in awful majesty through the woods, scouring the rocks and sweeping away like weeds the trees that stood in their way, but conclude that this cannot be the work of avalanches, because the scratches and fine polished strife show that the agent, whatever it was, moved along the sides of high rocks and ridges and up over the tops of them, as well as down their slopes. Neither can they see how water may possibly have been the agent, for they find the same strange polish upon the ridges and domes, thousands of feet above the reach of any conceivable flood. Of all the agents of whose work they know anything, only the wind seems capable of moving across the face of the country in the directions indicated by the scratches and grooves. The native name of Lake Tanaya is Puik, the Lake of Shining Rocks. One of the Yosemite tribe, Tom was his name, came to me and asked if I could tell him what had made the Tanaya rocks so smooth. Even dogs and horses, when first led up the mountains, study geology to this extent 
that they gaze wonderingly at the strange brightness of the ground and smell it and place their feet cautiously upon it as if afraid to fall or sink. In the production of this admirably hard finish, the glaciers in many places flowed with a pressure of more than a thousand tons to the square yard, planning down granite, slate, and quartz alike, and bringing out the veins and crystals of the rocks with beautiful distinctness. Over large areas below the sources of the Tulum and Merced, the granite is porphyritic, feldspar crystals, an inch or two in length in many places form the greater part of the rock, and these, when planned off level with the general surface, give rise to a beautiful mosaic on which the happy sunbeams plash and glow in passionate enthusiasm. Here lie the brightest of all the Sierra landscapes. The range both to the north and south of this region was, perhaps, glaciated about as heavily, but because the rocks are less resisting, their polished surfaces have mostly given way to the weather, leaving only small, imperfect patches. The lower remnants of the old glacial surface occur at an elevation of from 3,000 to 5,000 feet above the sea level, and 20 to 30 miles below the axis of the range. The short, steeply inclined canyon of the eastern flanks also contain enduring, brilliantly striated and polished rocks but these are less magnificent than those of the broad western flank. One of the best general views of the brightest and best of the Yosemite Park landscapes that ever Yosemite tourist could see is to be had from the top of Fairview Dome, a lofty conoidal rock near Cathedral Peak that long ago I named the Tulum Glacier Monument one of the most striking and best preserved of the domes. Its burnished crown is about 1,500 feet above the Tulum Meadows and 10,000 above the sea. At first sight, it seems inaccessible, though a good climber will find it may be scaled on the south side. About halfway up, you will find it so steep that there is danger of slipping. But feldspar crystals, two or three inches long, of which the rock is full, having offered greater resistance to atmospheric erosion than the mass of the rock in which they are embedded, have been brought into slight relief in some places, roughening the surface here and there, and affording helping footholds. The summit is burnished and scored like the sides and base, the scratches and strife indicating that the mighty Tulum Glacier swept over it as if it were only a mere boulder in the bottom of its channel. The pressure it withstood must have been enormous, had it been less solidly built 
it would have been carried away, ground into moraine fragments like the adjacent rock in which it lay embedded. For, great as it is, it is only a hard residual knot like the Yosemite domes, brought into relief by the removal of less resisting rock about it. An illustration of the survival of the strongest and most favorably situated. Hardly less wonderful is the resistance it has offered to the trying mountain weather since first its crown rose above the icy sea. The whole quantity of post-glacial wear and tear it has suffered has not degraded it a hundredth of an inch, as may readily be shown by the polished portions of the surface. A few erratic boulders, nicely poised on its crown, tell an interesting story. They came from the summit peaks twelve miles away, drifting like chips on the frozen sea, and were stranded here when the top of the monument merged from the ice, while their companions, whose positions chanced to be above the slopes of the side where they could not find rest, were carried farther on by falling back on the shallowing ice current. The general view from the summit consists of a sublime assemblage of ice-horn rocks and mountains, long wavering ridges, meadows, lakes, and forest-covered moraines, hundreds of square miles of them. The lofty summit peaks rise gradually along the sky to the east. The grey pillared slopes of the Hoffman Range towards the west and the billowy sea of shining rocks like the monument, some of them almost as high as which from their peculiar sculpture seem to be rolling westward in the middle ground, sometimes like breaking waves. Immediately beneath you are the big Tulum meadows, smooth lawns with large breadths of woods on either side and watered by the young Tulum River, rushing cool and clear from its many snow and ice fountains. Nearly all the upper parts of the basin of the Tulum Glacier is in sight, one of the greatest and most influential of all the Sierra ice rivers, lavishly flooded by many a noble affluent from the ice-laden flanks of Mount Dana, Lyle, McClure, Gibbs, Conness. It poured its majestic, overflowing current full against the end of the Hoffman Range, which divided and deflected it to right and left, just as a river of water is divided against an island in the middle of its channel. Two distinct glaciers were thus formed, one of which flowed through the Great Tulum Canyon and Hetch Hetchy Valley, while the other swept upwards in a deep current two miles wide across the divide, 500 feet high between the basins of the Tulum and the Merced, into the Tanaya Basin, and thence down through the Tanaya Canyon 
and Yosemite. The map-like distinctness and freshness of this glacial landscape cannot fail to excite the attention of every beholder, no matter how little of its scientific significance may be recognized. These bald, westward-leaning rocks, with their rounded backs and shoulders towards the glacier fountains of the summit mountains, and their split, angular fronts looking in the opposite direction, explain the tremendous grinding force with which the ice flood passed over them, and also the direction of its flow and the mountain peaks around the sides of the upper general Tulum Basin, with their sharp, unglaciated summits and polished, rounded sides, indicate the height to which the glaciers rose, while the numerous moraines, curving and swaying in beautiful lines, mark the boundaries of the main trunk and its tributaries as they exited towards the close of the glacial winter. None of the commercial highways of the land or sea, marked with buoys and lumps, fences and guideboards, is so unmistakably indicated as are these broad, shining trails of the varnished Tulum Glacier and its far-reaching tributaries. I should like now to offer some nearer views of a few characteristic specimens of these wonderful old ice streams, though it is not easy to make a selection from so vast a system intimately interblended. The main branches of the Merced Glacier are perhaps best suited to our purpose, because their basins full of telling inscriptions, are the ones most attractive and accessible to the Yosemite visitors, who like to look beyond the valley walls. They number five, and may well be called Yosemite glaciers, since they were the agents nature used in developing and fashioning the Grand Valley. The names I have given them are, beginning with the northernmost, Yosemite Creek, Hoffman, Tenaya, South Lyle, and Illuette Glaciers. These all converge in admirable poise around the northeast to southeast, welded themselves together into the main Yosemite Glacier, which, grinding gradually deeper, swept down through the valley, receiving small tributaries on its way from the Sentinel and Pahono Canyons, and at length flowed out of the valley and on down the range in a general westerly direction. At the time that the tributaries mentioned above were well defined as to their boundaries, the upper portion of the valley walls and the highest rocks about them, such as the domes, the uppermost of the Three Brothers and the Sentinel, rose above the surface of the ice. But during the valley's earlier history, all its rocks, however lofty, were buried beneath the continuous sheet, which swept like the wind, the upper portion of the current 
flowing steadily, while the lower portion went mazing and swedging down into the crooked and dome-blocked canyons towards the head of the valley. Every glacier of the Sierra fluctuated in width and depth and length, and consequently in degree of individuality, down to the latest glacial days. It must, therefore, be borne in mind that the following description of the Yosemite glaciers applies only to their separate conditions, and to that phase of their separate condition that they presented towards the close of the glacial period, after most of their work was finished, and all the more telling features of the valley and the adjacent regions were brought into relief. The comparatively level, many-fountained Yosemite Creek Glacier was about 14 miles in length by 4 or 5 in width, and from 500 to 1,000 feet deep. Its principal tributaries, drawing their sources from the northern spurs of the Hoffman Range, at first pursued a westerly course, then uniting with each other and a series of short affluents from the western rim of the basin. The trunk thus formed swept around to the southward in a magnificent curve and poured its ice over the north wall of Yosemite in cascades about two miles wide. This broad and comparatively shallow glacier formed a sort of crawling, wrinkled ice cloud that gradually became more regular in shape and river-like as it grew older. Encircling peaks began to overshadow its highest fountains. Rock islets rose here and there amid its ebbing currents, and its picturesque banks, adorned with domes and round-backed ridges, extended in massive grandeur down to the brink of the Yosemite walls. In the meantime, the chief Hoffman tributaries, slowly receding to the shelter of the shadows covering their fountains, continued to live and work independently, spreading soil, deepening lake basins, and giving finishing touches to the sculpture in general. At length, these also vanished, and the whole basin is now full of light. Forests flourish luxuriantly upon its ample moraines. Lakes and meadows shine and bloom amid the polished domes, and a thousand gardens adorn the banks of its streams. It is to the great width and even slope of the Yosemite Creek Glacier that we owe the unrivaled height and sheerness of the Yosemite Fall. For had the positions of the ice fountains and the structure of the rocks been such as to cause down-thrusting concentration of the glacier as it approached the valley, then, instead of high, vertical fall, we should have had a long, slanting cascade, which after all would perhaps have been as beautiful and interesting 
if we only had a mind to see it as so. The short, comparatively swift-flowing Hoffman Glacier, whose fountains extend along the south slopes of the Hoffman Range, offered a striking contrast to the one just described. The erosive energy of the latter was diffused over a wide field of sunken, boulder-like domes and ridges. The Hoffman Glacier, on the contrary, moved right ahead on a comparatively even surface, making descent of nearly 5,000 feet in five miles, steadily contracting and deepening its current, and finally united with the Tenaya Glacier as one of its most influential tributaries in the development and sculpture of the Great Half Dome, North Dome, and the rocks adjacent to them about the head of the valley. The story of its death is not unlike that of its companion already described, though the declivity of its channel and its uniform exposure to the sun heat prevents any considerable portion of its current from being torpid, lingering only when up on the mountain slopes to finish their sculpture and encircle them with a zone of moraine soil for forests and gardens. Nowhere in this wonderful region will you find more beautiful trees and shrubs and flowers covering the traces of ice. The rugged Tenaya Glacier, wildly crevassed here and there, above the ridges it had to cross, instead of drawing its sources directly from the summit of the range, formed, as we have seen, one of the outlets of the great Tulum Glacier, issuing from this noble fountain like a river from a lake, two miles wide, about fourteen miles long, and from 1,500 to 2,000 feet deep. In leaving the Tulum region, it crossed over the divide, as mentioned above, between the Tulum and the Tanaya basins, making an ascent of 500 feet. Hence, after contracting its wide current and receiving a strong affluent from the fountains about Cathedral Peak, it poured its massive flood over the northeastern rim of the basin in splendid cascades. Then, crushing heavily against the cloud's rest ridge, it bore down upon the Yosemite domes with concentrated energy. Towards the end of the ice period, while its Hoffman companion continued to grind rock meal for coming plants, the main trunk became torpid and vanished, exposing wide areas of rolling rock waves and glistening pavements on whose channelless surface water ran wild and free. And because the trunk vanished almost simultaneously throughout its whole extent, no terminal moraines are found in its canyon channel, nor since its walls are, in most places, too steeply inclined to admit of the deposition of moraine matter, do we find much 
each of the two main laterals. The lowest of its residual glaciers lingered beneath the shadow of the Yosemite Half Dome, others along the base of the Colosseum Peak above Lake Tenaya, and along the precipitous wall extending from the lake to the big Tulum Meadows. The latter, on account of the uniformity and continuity of their protecting shadows, formed moraines of considerable length and regularly that are liable to be mistaken for portions of the left lateral of the Tulum Tributary Glacier. Spend all the time you can spare or steal on the track of this grand old glacier, charmed and enchanted by its magnificent canyon, lake and cascades and resplendent glacier pavements. The Nevada Glacier was longer and more symmetrical than the last, and the only one of the Merced system whose sources extended directly back to the main summit on the axis of the range. Its numerous fountains were ranged side by side in three series at an elevation of from 10,000 to 12,000 feet above the sea. The first on the right side of the basin, extended from Matterhorn to Cathedral Peak, that on the left through the Merced Group, and these two parallel series were united by a third that extended about the head of the basin in a direction at right angles to the other. The three ranges of high peaks and ridges that supplied the snow for these fountains, together with the Clouds Rest Ridge, nearly enclose a rectangular basin that was filled with a massive sea of ice, leaving an outlet towards the west through which flowed the main trunk glacier, three-fourths of a mile to a mile and a half wide, fifteen miles long, and from one thousand to fifteen hundred feet deep, and entered Yosemite between the Half Dome and Mount Star King. Could we have visited Yosemite Valley at this period of its history, we should have found its icy cascades vastly more glorious than their tiny water representatives of the present day. One of the grandest of these was formed by that portion of the Nevada Glacier that poured over the shoulder of the Half Dome. This glacier, as a whole, resembled an oak, with a gnarled, swelling base and wide-spreading branches. Picturesque rocks of every conceivable form adorned its banks, among which glided the numerous tributaries, mottled with black and red and grey boulders, from the fountain peaks, while ever and anon, as the deliberate centuries passed away, Dome after dome raised its burnished crown above the ice flood to enrich the slowly opening landscapes. The principal moraines occur in short, irregular sections along the sides of the canyons, their fragmentary condition being due to interruptions 
caused by portions of the sides of the canyon walls being too steep for moraine matter to lie on, and to down-sweeping torrents and avalanches. The left lateral of the trunk may be traced about five miles from the mouth of the first main tributary to the Illuette Canyon. The corresponding section of the right lateral, extending from Cathedral Tributary to the Half Dome, is more complete because of the more favorable character of the north side of the canyon. A short side glacier came in against it from the slopes of the cloud's rest, but being fully exposed to the sun, it was melted long before the main trunk, allowing the latter to deposit this portion of its moraine undisturbed. Some conception of the size and appearance of this fine moraine may be gained by following the cloud's rest trail from Yosemite, which crosses it obliquely and conducts past several sections made by streams. Slate boulders may be seen that must have come from the Lyle Group, twelve miles distant, but the bulk of the moraine is composed of porphyritic granite derived from feldspar and cathedral valleys. On the sides of the moraines, we find a series of terraces, indicating fluctuations in the level of the glacier, caused by variations of snowfall, temperature, etc., showing that the climate of the glacial period was diversified by cycles of milder or stormier seasons, similar to those of post-glacial times. After the depth of the main trunk diminished to about 500 feet, the greater portion became torpid, as it's shown by the moraines, and lay dying in the crooked channel like a wounded snake, maintaining for a time a feeble, squirming motion in places of exceptional depth, or where the bottom of the canyon was more steeply inclined. The numerous fountain wounds, however, continued fruitful long after the trunk had vanished, giving rise to an imposing array of short residual glaciers extending around the rim of the general basin, a distance of nearly 24 miles. Most of these have been recently succumbed to the new climate, dying in turn as determined by elevation, size, and exposure, leaving only a few feeble survivors beneath the coolest shadows, which are now slowly completing the sculpture of one of the noblest of Yosemite basins. The comparatively shallow glacier that at this time filled the Illuette Basin though once far from shallow, more resembled a lake than a river of ice, being nearly half as wide as it was long. Its greatest length was about ten miles, and its depth perhaps nowhere much exceeding a thousand feet. Its chief fountain ranged along the west side of the Merced Group, at an elevation of about ten thousand feet, gave birth to fine tributaries that flowed in a westerly direction and united in the center of the basin. 
the broad trunk at first poured northwestward, then curved to the northward, deflected by the lofty wall forming its western bank, and finally united with the Grand Yosemite Trunk, opposite Glacier Point. All the phenomena relating to glacial action in this basin are remarkably simple and orderly on account of the sheltered positions occupied by its ice fountains, with reference to the disturbing effects of larger glaciers from the axis of the main range earlier in the period. From the eastern base of the Star King Cone, you may obtain a fine view of the principal moraines sweeping grandly out into the middle of the basin from the shoulders of the peaks between which the ice fountains lay. The right lateral of the tributary, which took its rise between Red and Merced Mountains, measures 250 feet in height at its upper extremity and displays three well-defined terraces, similar to those of the South Lyle Glacier. The comparative smoothness of the uppermost terrace shows that it is considerably more ancient than the others, many of the boulders of which it is composed having crumbled. A few miles to the westward, this moraine has an average slope of 27 degrees and an elevation about the bottom of the channel of 660 feet. Near the middle of the main basin, just where the regularly formed medial and lateral moraines flatten out and disappear, there is a remarkably smooth field of gravel planted with Arctostaphylos that looks at the distance of the mile like a delightful meadow. Stream sections show the gravel deposit to be composed of the same material as the moraines, but finer and more water-worn from the action of the converging torrents issuing from the tributary glaciers after the trunk was melted. The southern boundary of the basin is a strikingly perfect wall, grey on the top and white down the sides and at the base with snow, in which many a crystal brook takes rise. The northern boundary is made up of smooth, undulating masses of grey granite that lift here and there into beautiful domes of which the Star King Cluster is the finest, while on the east tower of the majestic fountain peaks, with wide canyons and neve amphitheatres between them, those variegated rocks show out glorious against the sky. The ice ploughs of this charming basin, ranged side by side in orderly gangs, furrowed the rocks with admirable uniformity, producing irrigating channels for a brood of wild streams and abundance of rich soil, adapted to every requirement of garden and grove. No other section of the Yosemite uplands is in so perfect a state of glacial cultivation. Its stones and peaks and swelling rock waves, however majestic in themselves, and yet submissively subordinate to the garden centre. 
The other basins we have been describing are combinations of sculptured rock, embellished with gardens and groves. The Iluet is one grand garden and forest, embellished with rocks, each of the five beautiful in its own way, and all as harmoniously related as are the five petals of a flower. After uniting in the Yosemite Valley and expanding the down-thrusting energy derived from their combined weight and the declivity of their channels, the grand trunk flowed on through and out of the valley. In effecting its exit, a considerable ascent was made, traces of which may still be seen on the abraded rocks at the lower end of the valley. While the direction pursued after leaving the valley is surely indicated by the immense lateral moraines extending from the ends of the wall at an elevation of from 1500 to 1800 feet. The right lateral moraine was disturbed by a large tributary glacier that occupied the basin of Cascade Creek, causing considerable complication in its structure. The left is simple in form for several miles of its length, or to the point where a tributary came in from the southeast. But both are greatly obscured by the forest and underbrush growing upon them, and by the denuding action of rains and melting snows, etc. It is therefore the less to be wondered at these moraines made up of material derived from distant fountain mountains, and from the valley itself were no sooner recognized. The ancient glacier systems of the Tulum, San Jacquin, Kern, and King's River basins were developed on a still grander scale, and are so replete with interest that the most sketchy outline description of each with the works they have accomplished, would fill many a volume. Therefore, I can do but little more than invite everyone who is free to go and see for themselves. The action of flowing ice, whether in the form of river-like glaciers or broad mantles, especially the part it played in sculpturing the earth, is as yet but little understood. Water rivers work openly where people dwell, and so does the rain and the sea, thundering on all the shores of the world, and the universal ocean of the air, though invisible, speaks aloud in a thousand voices and explains its modes of working and its power. But glaciers, back in their white solitudes, work apart from men exerting their tremendous energies in silence and darkness. Outspread, spirit-like, they brood above the predestined landscapes, work on unwearied through immeasurable ages, until, in the fullness of time, the mountains and valleys are brought forth, channels furrowed for rivers, basins made for lakes and meadows, and arms of the sea, soil spread for forests and fields, then they shrink and vanish like summer clouds.